We left off at verse 12, which says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. This is John on the Isle of Patmos. And I turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And we noted that these seven candlesticks are represented, uh, representative of the seven churches in Asia to whom John has been told he needs to take this revelation to. So in this, these seven churches, and as we mentioned last week, we see direct, direct, literal application to that time because those seven churches did exist. And even the historist view of the book cannot deny that the seven churches did exist and therefore there was an actual application of the revelation to the churches in that day. Even the historist view that says this revelation is all symbolic of church history has to admit that there were seven churches in that day. So it's the most literal application of the contents. We're not reading into it. There's no conjecture. There's really no historical view. There's no idealist view. There were seven churches and John has said, take these to them. All right, let's read through our text today, verses 13 through 17, where Jesus is now introduced. And today's exciting because we're gonna start to introduce to ourselves passages of scripture from the Old Testament. And they are going to coincide with descriptions of Jesus here. And it's really quite uh, revelatory, no pun intended. Verse 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And then verse 18, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So there's our text for today. We're not going to cover 18. Back to verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, last week we talked about the seven could have been spread out in a half circle or something, enough space between them. However, it was, whether it was big or small, they were spread out so that Jesus could be in the middle of them. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, John writes, one in the King James, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot and gird about with the paps of a golden girdle. So standing there in the midst of the seven separate stands, was, the King James says, one like the Son of Man, Son is capitalized. And going back to Daniel chapter seven, now we're gonna start to, and we're gonna go back to Daniel and we're gonna go to Ezekiel for the rest of most of our discussion about Revelation. But if you go with Daniel, first time in our study, we will discover similar verbiage used several hundred years before John receives this revelation. It says at verse 13 of chapter seven, I saw, Daniel writes, in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him, okay? So we notice that the same phraseology is used, one like the son of man, both in Daniel and here in Revelation. Now, it's really evident, it's obvious to us that because we've read to the end of the chapter that this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And who is called, when he walked the earth, he refers to himself almost every time it's him saying it, I am the son of man, I am the son of man. It was a title he used. But the Greek here is also important because it's missing the article. 
And what that means is it really should read, there was one like unto a son, lowercase s, of man. Okay, that's what it really should say if you look at the Greek. Test me, check me, the article's not there, and so it should say one like unto a son of man, not the son, capital S, of man. In other words, this being had the form that was like a human being, but he was more than that. He was different in his person. Um, here's the thing. He was not the son of man, capital S, that John was used to walking around with when he was on earth. It's not that it wasn't Jesus, it was. But he was not the son of man that John knew. So John explains him as being like a son of man. He had a human form, okay? This being was likened to a son, all lowercase, but as we will see, he was much, much more than just a regular old son of a man. Um, this clarification is really important. First of all, since there is no article in the Greek, we know that it should not read like the son, capital S. It shouldn't, and it does in most translations. Because the Daniel translation reads like a son, like the son of man, it's a capital S in Daniel. It's been transferred over here, but in the Greek, it's not what it says. And it should be, like I said, but a son of man. This little detail suggests that while we know that this is Jesus exalted due to how he describes himself in verse 18, we know this is Jesus exalted John was not saying that he was the son of man, the Jesus of Nazareth standing before him that John was used to. That's why he doesn't use the article and that's why he, the guy who stood before me was like a son of man, he was like a human. That's what he says. In other words, it seems like his exaltation that John was seeing in the revelation removed him so far from what John knew him to be in terms of what he was in the flesh, that all John was saying was that he beheld a being that was in the shape of a person, had arms and legs and feet and hair and a face, but he was a son of a man, but he doesn't call him the son of man. We also have to admit that John's use of the term could directly tie uh, to Daniel 7.13's description. And I would suggest that both the glory and the light which Jesus was now appearing in, along with his dress and his costume, was so unlike the lowly Jesus that John knew that it's quite possible at this stage of the revelation, John didn't know it was him. It could have been because of what we're gonna read uh, of what he does and what happens here and how Jesus introduces himself and says, behold, I am this, and he explains himself. So it's possible so far in the revelation, John doesn't know it's Jesus. John knew a Jesus that didn't have white hair. He knew a Jesus who was marred beyond description on a cross. He knew a Jesus who had dirty feet and who had probably tattered robe. He knew a guy in a very different state. Now he's describing someone in a way that right now, so far, it seems like he's like, this is what I'm seeing. It was like a son of man. And he's going to go on and talk about that. So he writes, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto a son of man clothed with a garment down to the foot and gird about the paps, that's the King James, with a golden girdle. Borrowing from the Old Testament, we have a couple of allusions made here to the dress that the Lord is wearing. So uh, for starters, it's a garment that hung down to the feet describes two types of people in the Old Testament. And we can pull these passages from the Old Testament to see John is describing two different types of people. Uh, Isaiah 6.1 indicates, or sort of indicates, that this is the apparel of a king, that kings wear these kinds of robes. Exodus uses very similar language, but Exodus describes a high priest. So Jesus is wearing, from the Old Testament's way of describing robes, a robe that is for a king and a priest from the Old Testament. Because apparently Jesus would have, if we think about it, kind of uh, ostensibly come from heaven, from being in the Holy of Holies in heaven. 
He would have come from being garbed, if we're gonna take a, this is actually happening, even in the vision, that he would have come apparently out of the Holy of Holies to share this revelation with John, which he received from God, it says in the first verse. And so his dress was appropriate. He was wearing what the high priest would have wore all the way to the golden girdle, which we're talking about in a minute, and also a long robe of a king, okay? And if you're gonna take it literally. Now, in the Old Testament, Aaron's robe and girdle described in Exodus were, quote, for glory and for beauty. That's what it says. And this appears to fit the description of what John says he sees. And as Aaron wore similar vestments, when he came forth out of the temple to bless the nation of Israel, he came out to reveal himself to show God has received the shed blood that I've taken in for you. It seems that we have a direct reflection of the same, except in this case, Jesus as our high priest was after the order of Melchizedek, not after the Aaronic priesthood line. And so we have a, a little bit different of a manifestation in what he's wearing. It's a little bit different. And we'll explain that when we get to it. Now, when, when the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies, he came to bring reward and or judgment upon the people. And typically it was reward because they offer shed blood. Well, this is what Jesus is doing the same. This is the revelation saying, I'm coming and I have a reward in my hands. I have judgment in my hands. This is what I'm bringing. It's also interesting that while tradition suggests that the temple priest wore the girding, if we read in scripture, it says it wore the girdle down around their stomach and their uh, groin. Um, Josephus and his antiquities 372, if you want to check me, he expressly says that the uh, Levitical priests wore their gird high up. Now, that's from a historical perspective that we get from uh, Josephus, who is not a believer, but he says that, not contrary to what it says in scripture, the high, the, the, uh, high priests wore their girdle higher up. And because of that reference, it's interesting because here it says that John says he's wearing it about the breasts, or it says the paps, which is a word I really do not like to say. Uh, so this is a description of John. It's in harmony with Josephus says how the high priests were wearing the girdle in his day, around that time, higher up. Also, the Old Testament high priest girdle was interwoven with gold. So we know that there's a parallel there, except here in John's description of what he's seen, he's wearing a girdle of gold. It's not interwoven with, it's of. To show that this was not just a high priest after the order of the Levitical priest, but it was a better order, it was a full, it was a fulfillment. So in this case, we kind of see the anti-type exceeding the type. The type was given through the Old Testament, through the high priest. Now we see the anti-type in Christ fulfilling it even more fully, all right? So there he was in the midst of the seven torch lights, lamps, could have been torches, could have been candelabras, could have been chandeliers. We, I know, it's so funny when you read commentaries because they say things like, at that time of uh, history, they would wrap cloths around certain coal and dip them into certain uh, this and light them. And so that is what John was seeing. But it's, it's a vision. So it could have been any kind of light. It's just funny when they will take these leaps and explain it that way, but we don't know. And John just says they were light stands. Verse 14, he says, his head and his hairs. So both his head and the hair of his head. It's not just the hair of his head, but his head and his hairs were white like wool. There are certain people who say that Jesus is a black man and I'm not mocking them, but this one, at least in Revelation, it says here he has a white head, okay? And he was white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire, okay? So in Daniel 7, going back, we read a similar description, but listen, this is a description of a being called the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, is, it says this in Daniel 7, 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. 
So, and then in chapter 10 of Daniel, we find another similar description that we're gonna read later, we'll consult later, and it says, his body also was like unto burl, and his face had the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color of polished brass. We see a lot of similarities here between what John has seen, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And that means, and we're gonna talk about that too. So I'm convinced that what John was witnessing, and, and I'm gonna say it this way, I hope it doesn't get me in trouble, but he was witnessing Jesus as God. That's the way I would put this. John is seeing Jesus as God. Not that Jesus isn't God, he is God. He's fully God here, and he is there. He is God. He is our God, he's our Messiah, he's our mediator. Meaning the man Jesus that John knew has overcome sin and death as a man. He is now King of Kings, he's now Lord of Lords, and he is experiencing, he is fulfilling, and John has seen all that God has promised his son, everything, from the foundation of the world once he passed through mortality, once he passed through, which was everything. He has all that the Father had. So now his presence was not one whit different from the Father. It was the ancient, he is the ancient of days described in the Old Testament. Uh, and those terms that are used by Daniel to describe him. So, verse 14, he says, his head and his hairs were wool, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. Now these are the exact same descriptions that God has given God Almighty, Jehovah, in Daniel and throughout the Old Testament. This is the exact verbiage, and so what has uh, led people to say is Jesus was the pre-incarnate God of the Old Testament because we see him showing up here in Revelation and he's described as God Jehovah was described in the Old Testament and therefore we know that is who he was and then this leads to all sorts of conjecture from both modalists and Trinitarians on the nature of God. Let's take, go, go slow with me and you're, we're gonna just talk. We have four things mentioned here and all of them are described by comparison. You'll notice that, uh, you know, like a good poet, um, uh, your eyes are as saucers, Fred Funstone, and your lips are red as, as cherries. So we make these comparisons so that we can make a comparison to, to the person, to the other thing we're all aware of. So John says his head and his hairs were white like wool and as white as snow. So we have a comparison there for us to, in our minds to think, okay. And then he said his eyes were as a flame of fire. So we know that his eyes, does it mean that his eyes were burning with fire? I don't know. He says it was as a flame of fire. So sometimes people take these things exactly and literally. Sometimes say it's like, it's a parallel uh, to it. His feet were like, and this is exactly what Daniel says, describing the ancient of days, undefined brass, as if, as if they burned in a furnace. So it wasn't that they were, but maybe they were. And his voice as the sound of many waters. There's that, there's that description where Daniel says it was the voice of a, a voice of a multitude. So John says it was a sound of many waters. So let's try to get down to some brass tacks. And my views, they're mine. First of all, we know from context that this is a description of Jesus Christ glorified. No doubt. There is no doubt that it's him, and there's no doubt that he has been consummately glorified, and what we see here is a very different picture. It's even different from what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was alive. This is a very different state for the Lord Jesus Christ, for John to see him in, or for him to be in. And he has been fitted it says, as a man, he appears to, as a son of man, but not as the son of man, meaning the Jesus of Nazareth with brown hair and a beard and marred and all those things. We also know that these very same descriptions of his eyes, of his feet and skin, of his robe, his hair, are all found describing God in Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. 
those three main books that relate so closely to what we're gonna be reading and studying here in Revelation. So we have a really strong parallel that's already begun between the God of the Old Testament being described in these terms and Jesus now, John's firsthand view of him since he's ascended, looking like how God was described completely in the Old Testament. In all of those Old Testament places, those places are describing Yahweh. They are describing Jehovah. They are describing the God Almighty every time. So we have a choice to make. Some say, like I just mentioned, that the Old Testament descriptions are describing what they have created, something called Christophanies. Could be. And that in the pre-existent state, as Christ had a pre-existence, that he was revealing himself to the nation of Israel, and that is what they were seeing in their visions, and prior to taking on a body and becoming the Son of Man, okay? But some say they describe God Almighty as the Ancient of Days, who is the Ancient of Days, and we see a distinguishing in the Old Testament between the Ancient of Days and one who is made like unto the Son of Man. So we see him separated there, and the Ancient of Days is not the Son in the Old Testament. So the title Ancient of Days first appears in Daniel 7, 9, where Daniel is describing a vision of heaven. And here sits a being on a flaming throne uh, with wheels of fire, his hair and clothing white as snow. The flaming throne is symbolic of judgment, while the white hair and the title ancient indicate that God has existed before all things. Ancient of Days. In Isaiah 43, 13, God refers to himself as existing from ancient of days, before days were, that's the literal meaning. This means God existed before days were ever created, supported by Genesis. And then we also read that God in the Old Testament is described as being from everlasting to everlasting. That's Psalm 92. But that this is now assigned, this, these descriptions are now being assigned to Jesus as the Alpha and Omega that in the Old Testament of Isaiah 44, 6, God is also called the first and the last. Now Jesus is being called the first and the last. Okay? So in terms of physical descriptions, all that we read in the Old Testament are assigned to God. And any Jew, any uh, Muslim who reads the Old Testament in that sense, and uh, most Christian scholars would say, that's God. That's talking about God. Sometimes we'll do this Christophany, and that's him showing up. The LDS will use the Christophany example of him in his pre-mortal existence showing up in the Old Testament to work with the nation of Israel. But bottom line, the blazing hair, eyes glowing, feet glowing was God, but now it's all assigned to Jesus. Where glorious God judged and reigned over Israel in the Old Testament, it seems now that we are seeing a similar description occurring here in Revelation 14 through 15. And it's given to Christ who appears to possess all the same power, all the same characteristics, all the same judgment over his church that the Ancient of Days had over the children of Israel. We are seeing an actual shift in this, in, in, in a sense. So we actually observe Jesus having an all-knowing understanding of the seven churches. We're going to read about that in the next few weeks. That when he starts to describe the seven churches, Jesus says this and this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this and this and this I have with you. It's all him. It's all him talking here. Now, quickly, that title, Ancient of Days, is only found three times in Scripture. And all of them are in Daniel, and all of them are couched as prophetic messages. Okay, so I'm going to read them to you, and I want you to listen, and I want you to hear who it's describing, okay? Especially the first two compared to the third. Verse 7, 9, Daniel 7, 9 says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. That's the first one. I believe it's talking about God the Father, and almost every commentary you read will say that. Some will say the Son there. At verse 13 in chapter 7, it says, I saw in night visions and beheld one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. We're having a prophetic utterance here. 
and came to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. So we have a distinguish, distinguishing factor there. And they brought him near before him. So this is admitted to be the Ancient of Days is God and the Son of Man Christ is being brought to him. That's how that's interpreted. But then in Luke, I mean, Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, we read, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. This is a futuristic, uh, futuristic prophetic stance and it's talking about the Ancient of Days coming and with judgment is given to the saints. And so we see a transition. Two of those verses are all talking about God Almighty and then one of them is talking about another one who's going to come with judgment and he's going to give judgment to the saints. So it seems like the first two references speak of God the Father, but the third time in verse 22, the title Ancient of Days refers specifically to Jesus whose judgment was going to come upon Israel in the end times. And that's the context of what we're reading here. Some suggest that the term speaks of God the Father in the Old Testament and then to the Son Jesus in the New Testament as here. And this is hard to refute. This, this shouldn't be refuted. That's what is happening here. And because of this, most use this as evidence, as support for the particulars of creedal Trinitarianism, that God the Father is called the Ancient of Days there, Jesus the Son is called the Ancient of Days now in Revelation, and in, by, terms, by looking at these comparisons. And so what we have are not two gods, but two persons of God manifesting themselves in Scripture through this Ancient of Days. I tend to see that the fact that Jesus comes to pronounce judgment on the world as the ancient of days and in all ways that he is described as saying nothing more than Jesus, and this is how I see it, has overcome. Having inherited all that God the Father has, including the title ancient of days. That's how I see that. I do not see it as some way to support creedal Trinitarianism. A few more points about the description here of a post-ascension about to return Jesus to the earth. Let's cover a few more points. John writes that the tone and hue of his feet were like golden melted brass. Perhaps that's the better description, golden melted brass and that his voice is the sound of many waters, which might be best understood as the sound of a roaring ocean. Those of you who heard the waves crash on the beach, that's what he's saying it sounds like. So this is really sublime material. I, wanna, I really want to uh, emphasize that right now. This is sublime stuff here. We're talking about John, who knew Jesus, who was born of a woman, laid in a manger, walked around on earth, ate, drank, laughed. I'm sure he told jokes. I'm sure he had friendship and fellowship with those people that he walked around with, wept. He's now here and he comes to John in this vision and his voice is described in terms of vibrations. If those of you who know string theory and know vibration theory and all this stuff that talks about now with these smart guys, you know, now it's talked about a voice that is just reverberating, like the uh, crashing oceans, like the voice of a multitude. That's his voice, this guy who ran around in Jerusalem, okay? And again, we find comparison in the Old Testament, descriptions of God. Ezekiel 43.2 says, And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So we have John saying this is the voice of many waters here talking to him. And we have in the Old Testament saying the glory of the God of Israel came and his voice was the sound of many waters and the earth shined with his glory. We have Jesus embodying this now. Okay, Daniel 10, 6 says, and his body was like burl and his face appeared of lightning and his eyes were lamps of fire and his arms and his feet like color polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of that multitude. It was all kinds of voices coming out from the word. I mean, this is, this is a radical revelation for John. And no wonder he didn't know that this was Jesus that he walked around with. We are talking about a completely different being now who is fully, 
fully now on earth. He wasn't fully. He, he died. But now he is fully possessing all the attributes of God. And so I believe that as a mortal man, Jesus obtained these characteristics uh, from the Father, having overcome all things while in flesh. I don't think he had to. I don't think there was a question as to could he. I don't think it was part of his mortal probation. I think the fact that a man born of a woman overcame all things and now is our mediator and king and Lord and Savior and God before the Father. And I think that is consistent with Scripture. That's what he did for us. He mediates between us and the invisible God. I believe that it was God in him that empowered him to fully die to himself, fully God in him. But that man was learning obedience through the things he suffered. That is a scripture. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. Okay, that does not depict to me the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God walking around on earth with his 12 apostles. It represents a man who had to overcome himself by the power of God, by God in him, in order to receive what he did. I believe that in him we see ourselves only to discover the perfection of God within ourselves and that having finished all things, we can see that a man did this. He was able to become the author and finisher of our faith and a mediator to the invisible God as God himself now. He is God, okay? So a faith that saves the human race. I believe that here John is witnessing who Jesus actually is. This is the first time. Having overcome the human flesh he was given and possessing all power and authority, all the keys to the kingdom. He's gonna end this uh, chapter talking about keys. He has all the keys to death. He says, I am alive, I was once dead. That's what he says. He says, I have the keys. Now he possesses something, okay? And he now, as someone who was once a man, Truly, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the uh, first and the last, truly the Ancient of Days, human mediator, now fully God before us. So in my estimation, he came and then became our template. He always was, but he became it in flesh. Not that we could ever do what he has done. We never could, never will, but we are called to pursue that path that he trod, because that was the model for the Jews, but it was for also the Gentiles. And so we are called to pursue a path that he blazed, to tread the path he trod, to pick up our cross, expecting to walk to Calvary, have ourselves crucified daily so that we can be buried with Christ in the flesh and live by the Spirit. There's all the models. So this is truly a revelation to John as he knew Jesus with the, with the dirty feet and the spinach in his teeth. He knew that Jesus. Now he's seen one whose voice and countenance fire light, his skin is like it's in uh, copper gold, speaking in multitudes of, of roaring waves, we are seeing a, quite the revelation. And truly the Alpha Omega, not only for the house of Israel, but for the human race. And John continues, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. So he had in his right hand seven stars, and we know uh, that there's a consistency of right hand here, you know, through scripture, and the left, you know, the right and the left. And there's a consistency that John would say he had in his right hand. I love those little things because they make me believe the, the vision was true. He wasn't just holding them in his left hand, the right hand of power was so important and he held the seven stars in his right. We also note from verse 20 that what John calls the seven stars, they represent the seven angels of the seven churches. We know from the definition John will give us, the seven stars in his hand represent the seven angels of the seven churches, not the seven churches themselves. Whether they were actually stars or star-shaped things or the actual angels or bright things, we don't know. We're also not sure if they danced on the palm of his hand 
if they were in the order that the lights were in the order. We don't know any of that either. None of it's shared with us. Why each of the seven churches have an angel assigned to them? We're going to get to that too when we talk about it next week. Uh, because the revelation is given to the angels of the church by John, not to the church itself. We're going to see that. Or actually, it's not the revelation. It's Jesus' words to them is given to the angels themselves. So that is going to play into what we're talking about too. So we don't know why there are only seven represented because there are many more churches at that time. So this may play into the historicist view that the seven angels are representative of seven periods of time in the history of the church. And that's why it's said just seven. Seven's a complete number in scripture. Seven's an important number in the book of Revelation. So seven churches represents all the churches. And that's how an idealist or a historicist would say over the uh, period of uh, Christian history. Uh, we don't know. If we're gonna take it literally, there were seven churches in that area. We have to decide. Admittedly, this line of thinking bodes really well for the historist view. Because it, why just seven? Why doesn't Jesus include eight and that would include the church at Jerusalem? Or why wouldn't he include a nine, nine that would include Antioch? He doesn't. There's just seven. And so it makes us wonder, is this representative of all of history? Is this an idealist view? Is this literal? But why just the seven and the seven spirits? We're gonna have to try to answer that as we come to it. We'll talk more about that in the seven churches in the coming weeks. But in addition to the seven stars, John says, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So if you're like me, what I see when I read this is the vision of Jesus and suddenly, <laughs> I can't help it. And there's a literal sword sharp on both sides that comes out of his mouth because that's what it says. And <laughs> I can't help but see it that way, but that's a freakish thing. And it's important that we try to step back and understand other ways to understand this and we'll use scripture to do it. We can't just use what it says. And so when people say you take the Bible literally, this is a great passage to go and say, is that what that means? Because if it does, you know, fine, it does. But if not, it might have another meaning, and the word teaches us what that meaning might does. Now, admittedly, it could be literal, but first John does not say, listen carefully, that he sees uh, a sharp two-edged sword come out of his mouth. He doesn't say, I see it. He just says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That allows that to be words. Out of his mouth came the word of God, which is how the Bible defines the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. So that is one thing to look at. So right there, we might all believe that John is really describing is that the word of God is coming out of Jesus' mouth, which in scripture is always likened to a double-edged sword. And being that the setting of the book of Revelation is one about coming judgment, we can see that by the words of his mouth, and we have other scriptural evidence to support this, we will be judged. So the two-edged judgment, all will be judged. The writer of Hebrews, you know this one, he provides us with a great description of the power of the word of God uh, uh, that discerns, judges the contents of our hearts. It says, for the word of God, for the word of God, for the word of God, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we have, now we can start to say, yeah, it's quite possible that that word was the actual word of God that John heard coming from its mouth. I have to believe that this is the context of what John is saying, that this figure, Jesus, God, was able to split and divide everything asunder by his word. The sheep and the goats, he could speak it. The light from the darkness, he could speak it in Genesis. He could divide the heart of a human being. He could judge them. And that is what is coming out of his mouth in my estimation of what John is saying. And he's attesting to this by saying that from his mouth came a, went a sharp two-edged sword. 
uh, again, this description is not unique to John's revelation. We're going to read in, in Revelation 19:15 toward the end of it. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Another uh, appeal to the word of God. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. We'll cover what that uh, verse may mean when we get to it. Ephesians 6:17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So we have the sword, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword. John is saying the sword, double-edged sword came out of his mouth. So we have more connections that are helping us define what is actually being said. Revelation 2.16, we're going to read, Repent, Jesus says, or else I will come unto you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So again, is it literal? Uh-huh. And, or, sorry, or is it his word? And I mean, his word is the most reasonable to me. So in a messianic prophecy of Isaiah, it says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Like a, we have a lot of that in here. So it's like a sharp sword that his words can cut and split and divide right down the middle of what's going on. And then Hosea 6.5 says, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Slain, sword, all of this now coming together in context of what scripture says about that uh, vision. An ancient two-edged sword, of course, was designed to cut both ways and is therefore a tremendous uh, emblem for uh, being able to get to the truth from someone who is an enemy and someone who is righteous or a friend. It can, it can determine who is righteous and who is not, and it can hew down an enemy, the sharp two-edged sword. Here in Revelation, there are two groups that were going to be cut down here. There are going to be those who have been hanging on and trusting in, and they're not going to be cut down, but the word is what's going to be save them, cut through. You are truly a sheep. You are truly a goat. We're going to have a double-edged thing going on here, and so that application seems to be really fitting. John adds, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. So this is the third reference in the short time we've spent today to fire and flame in this description of the ascended and now uh, visionary Christ. The third to flame. In John 14, uh, John said, and his eyes were as a flame of, excuse me, in verse 14, John said, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. There's the first. In verse 15, he said, and his feet were like in the fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Second to fire or flame. And now we read, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. So once again, a comparison presents itself to us. We have more comparison. The son of man whom John knew and walked the earth and then is now the Alpha and Omega who is now reigning in the Holy of Holies uh, where God, the consuming fire dwells. Okay, stay with me. In describing God, the psalmist wrote, a fire goes before him and burns the enemies round about. We read in Hebrews, we read in another place that God is a consuming fire. That is how he is described most plainly in scripture. God is a consuming fire. In 1 Timothy 6.13, Paul says this, I give you charge in the sight of God who quickens all things and before Jesus Christ, whom before, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he showed, who is blessed and the only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who Jesus showed, the only potentate, the King and King and Lord of lords. Listen, who only has immortality, Talking about God, who only has immortality. Jesus does now, but Jesus didn't when he walked the earth. He died. God, the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Paul says he's the only one who has immortality, 
dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto and no man has seen nor can see, nor can see to whom honor and praise and glory forever, he says. Paul describes God, and this is why the esteemed Reverend Vernon McGee said, I don't think human beings are ever gonna see him. I don't think we can. I think we're gonna see his son, who he sent. And he, his son is God. He is overcome. He is our mediator too, but we can't ascend into that fiery place. Now that's a conjecture almost everybody disagrees with, but Vernon McGee knows the scripture. He says, I don't think we're ever gonna see him. It's too scary, too fiery. I, I don't know if I agree with that, but I suggest John is witnessing the ultimate manifestation of our Lord and Savior. Yes, our King, our mediator, the Father, that he is the only man who dwells in the light or can approach thereunto. He's the only one. He has seen the light, which no man could or can, Scripture says. And here he stands before John in the body, having the capacity to dwell in that light and in that fire. He has the capacity. He's been in it, as evidenced by his eyes, his hair, and his feet, which John says look like they've been molten brass or gold. This is a picture of someone dwelling in a fiery light. John says his countenance, his face was full of splendor and light, similar to Moses when he came down with the law and having an interaction with God. How bright was his countenance? John says it was as the sun shines in his strength. Okay? And again, a description that in part is all over scripture. Judges 5.31 says, but let them that love him, the Lord, be as the sun when he goeth out in his might. Second Samuel 23, four says, and he shall be as a light of the morning when the sun arises, even a morning without clouds. And Psalms 19 says, which the sun is as a bridegroom coming out of the chamber, rejoicing as a strong man runs a race. So in all this, we have some remarkable comparisons to nature in all this that we've just read here in Revelation that have been created by God through his word, who is Christ made flesh. John has like in aspects of his person, listen to this, we've just read it, to snow. He's like in aspects to his person to flames of fire, to the sound of many waters, and to a countenance that as, is as the sun in his full strength. All of those from nature, all of them, fire, flame, snow, water, and the sun. We note that all of these elements can be a blessing to somebody and or they can be a curse to somebody. And that's what's happening now with Jesus' revelation. He's coming back. He's gonna be a blessing to some. He's going to be a curse to some. He's gonna be like snow and roaring waters to some. Oh, the reprieve. He's gonna be like flame and, and a sun in his strength to others. If you are cold, he's gonna warm you. If you are lukewarm, he's gonna burn you. All of it is right there. We note that all of those elements are, can be a thing that will bless or destroy. And in this, he truly does possess a two-edged sword, an unfettered ability to give life or to take it, to bless life or to ruin it. He is coming, here's his revelation. This is what he's come to do. And it's, he's about to arrive on the scene to do just what he says. So we're talking about John seeing the full living embodiment of God in the persons of Jesus Christ, a man born of a woman under the law. We are seeing this. Obviously, he retained the image or shape of a son of man, but appears to be the complete living God, the Alpha and Omega, the Ancient of Days, the first and the last, and someone who John did in fact uh, have the capacity to see now. We know that people can see Christ now can't see the living God. He's a fire that consumes, but our mediator who has overcome all things and lives and dwells in the bosom of the Father, we can see him. That's interesting to me. Scripture says no man can see God and live. This is not to say that Jesus isn't God, but it's to say that our mediator is the one who, uh, as a man overcoming, filled with God, can dwell in his presence. There's an exception to that. Let me just cover it. God said to Moses in Exodus 33:20, "You cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live." That's plain, straight up. 
you know? And there's all kinds of games that people play, the LDS, I, I know the games, about, well, you know, man can, Joseph did see, you know, all those games. No, 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 it's right here. And in John 1.18, it says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So now we're putting Jesus into the bosom of the father and he declares him to us. Okay, and Jesus said in John 4, uh, 6, 46, listen to this. He says, not that any man has seen the Father, save he, save he, except he, which is of God. Speaking about himself, meaning himself, as none of the rest of us are of God, we are his creations, but we are not his son or daughter from birth. He, Jesus says, has seen the Father. So we have a being standing before John who has seen God. And he looks that way, having been there and done that. And we see it played out. Jesus, the complete, full embodiment, God himself proves he's not only seen him, he is him. All that God is, Jesus has and is. And coming from the bosom of the Father, he continues to, to declare him to John. So this is obviously not a representation of Jesus risen from the grave. This is not the, the resurrected Jesus coming out and having the wounds in his hands. This is not the Jesus with a crown. It's not the, the bloody soiled robe. This is a victorious Jesus coming. And his bloody countenance here is bathed in light as piercing as an unobstructed sun. So let me take the last line of our study today. It's in verse 17. John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, um, we're talking about a different phase here for John and his relationship. John reverenced Jesus. John loved the Lord. John walked with the Lord. John passed the bread to the Lord and shared a cup with the Lord, I'm sure. Here he's falling at his feet as dead. Now he's, now he's getting, he's getting, I think, the full thing. Rarely in scripture, we see people making obeisance to others, including Jesus, and some of the apostles when they were mistaken as angels or gods from the Greeks, but rarely do they ever say they fell as dead. But here John adds that. I didn't fall to worship him. He said, I fell as if I was without breath, without strength. I was a dead being. All through the key books that we're gonna constantly go back to and look at more thoroughly as we go, in Daniel, Ezekiel, um, Isaiah, we have in those three books, especially, evidences where others had an engagement with God and had a death-like experience. Um, in Isaiah 6.1, I'm gonna read it. You've heard it before, but it's a beautiful thing that Isaiah says. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now people say, wait a minute, he saw the Lord. That's a contradiction. This is a vision. Okay, lifted high up and his train filled the temple. That is what we're talking about, Jesus' long gown going down to his feet. His train filled the temple. This is a congruency with scripture. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his feet and with twain he covered his face and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, here it is, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a dead man. I'm undone. That, that passage, that verse, that word, I am undone, is obliterated. I got nothing, okay? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Ezekiel 1.26, we read, and above the firmament there was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man. So we have that imagery again of a man uh, uh, above upon it. And the color was amber and it goes on and on. And then Ezekiel says in verse 28, and when I saw it, I fell upon my face. And I heard a voice of one that spake. John is, he's bringing the same response. When you have an interaction with the living God, 
uh, you are gonna fall as a dead person because that is his holiness, that is his fire. And then Daniel, we read almost all that we've talked about in this imagery that John has used in these passages. And so I'm gonna read it from Daniel because we're gonna come back to this. It's an important part of our study. In Daniel chapter 10, beginning at verse seven, just stay with me and we'll wrap it up. It says, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. So Daniel was alone, John was alone in his vision. Therefore I was left alone, he says, verse eight, and saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me for my beauty was turned in me to corruption. And I retained no strength. I was as a dead man, gone. Yet I heard the voice, so this happens all the time. There is a dying and then there is a voice. Happens throughout these. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground and behold, a hand touched me. We see that happen with John. We're gonna talk about it next week, same thing. Which set me on my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright for unto thee I am now sent. This was an angel, this was not the Lord coming and speaking. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling and he said, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and 20 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So he, this angel says, listen, I was trying to get to you. I was sent to you. But the, um, the prince of the king of Persia withstood me for 21 days, well, for one and 20 days. And I couldn't get there. But Michael, the archangel, came and helped me. We can see a war going on here in the Old Testament of what's happening in the heavens to get things done. He says, now I am come to make you understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days for yet the vision is for many days. What he's saying there is, I'm gonna help you understand what Jesus has come to give, what is about to happen to them. He tells them all the way back in Daniel chapter 10, verse seven through 15 or whatever it is. Listen, Daniel saw what was gonna happen. It's gonna happen in many, many days. Jesus comes and he gives to John what's about to fall upon them. That is how you might see that. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground and I became dumb. That's the interaction. And behold, like one, the, excuse me, and behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. This stuff is, then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto them that stood before me, oh my Lord, lowercase l here, by the vision my sorrows have turned upon me and I have retained no strength. I'm dead in the presence of God and his messengers, God himself. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? Two lowercase l's. For as for me straightway there remaineth no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. That's a dead person. I mean, figuratively speaking. Then there came again one that touched me like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. And he said, oh man, greatly beloved, fear not. We're gonna read next week that the follow-up, it's, well, I'll read it right now. John says, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last. In Daniel, we see the angel touching Daniel to strengthen him. In Isaiah, we say the angel's touching Isaiah's lips to clean them. And here, when Jesus walked the earth, he touched and spoke and healed people, gave them peace, told them not to be afraid. And right here in John, who has fallen dead on the ground in the vision, Jesus now says, lays his right hand upon me, the same hand that was bearing the seven stars, by the way. So we don't know if he, what, how that worked and said, fear not, I am the first and the last. And we're gonna wrap it up at verse 18, which we'll cover next week. I am he that liveth and was dead. This is Jesus. This is the man who walked the earth, Jesus. I am he who liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I, he ends it with, have the keys of hell and of death. 
That's an interesting passage. We'll pick it up next week and see what that means. Questions or comments, if any? Anything? Okay. Let's pray. Oh, wait. Yes. I forgot. Come up here. Wait. I want you to share this with the... Well, hey, I've got some other stuff, too. Oh. oh wait, wait. Wendy. Yeah, Wendy. Come on. Oh, Wendy. Gosh. Oh. I was hoping somebody else would say something more. No. This point you brought out is really good. Okay. Th- this is the side of that. This is uh, in reference to today. Uh, the NIB uh, says, was someone like a son of man. Okay. Okay. This is where it gets interesting. Then uh, he goes on to liken white as wool, to liken uh, blazing fire, to liken bronze and glowing. But then he says, uh, voice, oh, let's see, excuse me, hang on. But, but then he says, rather than liken, he said, out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Wow. He does not. That's the only thing he doesn't liken. Hmm. That is interesting. Which is interesting. That right? is. Yeah. All right. So going back, if we can regress to last week. This is a good point, I you apologize. guys. If you were here last week. Um, you were bringing up a connection between Paul and John if we go to Revelation 4 where John ascended to heaven. Right. You liken that to what Paul was saying about knowing a man. Yeah. 14 years. And, and so then I believe you went to, so when would have that happened where Paul and John would have been together? Acts 15. And you went to Acts 15. So, um, so we have that connection with Paul and Barnabas. Right. Right. Okay, so if we go back to 2 Corinthians where it says, I know a man in Christ who four, 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Now, whether he was in the body, I don't know. So that, that's going to be relevant. But 14 years ago, he right. knew a man. Okay, and we're likening that. We're, we're, we're relating that to John in Revelation 4. Right? right. So if you go to, this is where it's interesting, where I think you're onto something. We just need to figure out what that means. If you go to Galatians 2, nine, well, 2 starts right there. It, and so it says, Then after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas again. So we're relating that back to confirming what Acts says, right? right. But it says, I took, uh, okay, it says, uh, This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and a meeting... Um, Privately with those esteemed leaders, so he That's went awesome. to a to a revelation. So, does so, that mean something? Who knows? But but it's pretty coincidental. So that, let me summarize for the audience at home. What that could mean is that John first was told to come up, as we talked about. He went up. He received part of the revelation. He gave it to Paul at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, and then Paul says, 14 years later. I came, and maybe John had another segment of that revelation where we read last week, he was taken in different times to come up, come over here, and so that might support that idea, that it all wasn't at one sitting. Yeah, so what gets tricky is Galatian actually predates Acts. So so we're looking at all these dates, but but we can look at dating revelation. Yeah. You know, it's all speculative. Okay. But but it's too coincidental. I think there's something there. That's a great point, Mark. Thanks so much. These points are diamonds. You guys, you bring it. This opens it up. I love it. Praise God. All right. Wendy, did you want to make any comment? Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you open up our eyes and minds by your word, and we can get some idea of what's going on. We make mistakes, but you are with us, and we just pray you'll continue to send your spirit abundantly to those who seek and want to know. And that with the knowledge or with the insights we gain, we will be more humbled, more attuned to what you want us to be and do while we walk this earth. We pray that we will be enlightened and lifted and filled with the fruit of your Holy Spirit because of our study and not become pedantic or arrogant or proud or scribes, but that we will use the insights you give us by your Spirit to uplift and encourage and bless the lives of others. 
Speaking of others, Lord, we pray for these people on this list. We pray for Daniel and his kidney disease, Annette. Her cancer has reoccurred. We pray for peace officers injured in the line of duty and their families, for Chris and Lauren Kay, uh, loss of a baby. We pray for Eric, his spiritual needs, for Jarvis, who is battling cancer. Pray for uh, Sister uh, Heidi and uh, the cancer that is in her body, that it will dwindle and, and die and fade, and she will live a long, healthy life, and she'll overcome that. We pray for Dawn Faber and her recently diagnosed uh, cancer, and that she too will be able to um, be completely healed and live a long life. And Lord, we pray for Dean, who will find a path to God and be saved from his addiction to substances and become a man who is uh, new in your eyes. Bless us as we move forward. This is a big week in our world, Lord, and Thanksgiving and family and meals and all sorts of stuff. Let us be a light and a shining light to the people we come in contact with and help us to remember who we are and, and how you've made us so we can be used by your hand. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. No song today, folks. I know you're going to miss it. It's because we had our one, we had a technical difficulty. So we'll see you next week, God willing. Next week, are, are we?